From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. Heading into this year, there was no shortage of global concerns on the horizon. From geopolitical tensions in the Middle East and North Korea to a high-stakes election year here in the U.S., But the event that no one expected was the current outbreak of COVID-19. As we know by now, COVID-19 is a coronavirus that first emerged in the populous city of Wuhan, China, and is now proving to be more infectious and virulent than the common flu. The reaction within China was swift. An unprecedented lockdown of much of the country in late January, effectively halting a vast amount of activity in the world's second-largest economy, with the impact on global supply chains just beginning to emerge. Although the Chinese economy is starting to limp back to life, the number of international cases continues to grow. Meanwhile, as data on the economic fallout has begun to trickle in and governments and central banks around the world respond, the state of the virus and its impact on markets and the global economy is top of mind. We start by trying to get a handle on the virus itself, turning to Dr. Barry Bloom from Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Dr. Michael Osterholm, the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. I asked Dr. Bloom to break down what we do and don't know about the virus right now. We know, thanks to the extraordinary research and scientific work in China, the DNA sequence, they got it right within 10 days, put it up so that every scientist in the world could start to think about how to set up diagnostic tests, which were set up in a matter of days in China and how to go do things like make drugs and vaccines. So we know a bit about the virus. I think it's astonishing that the science has moved so quickly. We know that it is spread from person to person. We know something about a key figure, which is the effective transmission rate, which is how many people get disease from a single individual source. And that's estimated to be somewhere around 2.3. That number doesn't mean a lot in itself until it gets to less than one. Less than one means that every person who is sick will transmit to fewer than one person, and that tells us that the peak of the epidemic is past and it will be on the way down at that time. And we know this is distinguished from most flu and most common upper respiratory infections because We know from the x-rays that this is a lower lung infection, and that means more likely to be spread by coughing than just sneezing, but it's probable that it can do both. And we know that of those that are identified with severe respiratory disease in China and Korea, it's about 14% of people who come home with respiratory disease actually have this, and then 2% of those die we don't have really terrific numbers on that. We're hearing a lot about the 2% mortality rate. Does that provide any information, really? Not really. And the reason is the mortality rate is dependent on how many people die, and that's the first thing we know about any outbreak, is how many people go to a hospital and how many people die in the hospital. And that number 
is always outrageously high and panics people. But what we don't know at this point is the total denominator of how many people are infected with this virus. In the case of SARS, virtually everybody infected was sick. So if you followed sick people, you pretty much could guess what the denominator was. But in this case, there is increasing evidence of asymptomatic transmission. People who are infected do not feel sick or don't feel very sick. Nobody is really testing for those except in Hong Kong and perhaps in China. So we don't know what the denominator is. We know this is a lethal and serious and very rapidly spreading infection. That's what we do know. I then asked Dr. Osterholm what makes this virus different and similar to previous outbreaks. You've expressed some skepticism over comparing this virus to the 2003 SARS epidemic. Why do you think that's an inaccurate comparison? We have to be very careful about comparing a coronavirus infection like this with other coronaviruses and how they are transmitted and the seriousness of the illness. In a sense, with both SARS and MERS, two very concerning coronavirus spillovers that occurred from animals into humans, in both of those instances, the majority of the transmission occurs well into the patient's illness, meaning four or five or six days of clinical illness before they really become infectious. While they have a much higher case fatality rate with SARS, about 10%, MERS as high as 25 to 30%, we can address those illnesses fairly easily in terms of public health intervention and prevention by recognizing cases early when they're still in this likely very low infectiousness state and getting them into isolation or rooms in hospitals where their air will not infect others. That's not the case with this illness. We're talking surely about a much lower case fatality rate than we see with either MERS or SARS, but at the same time, transmission is quite dynamic and many, many more people will get it. So I think that to compare this with either SARS or MERS is just not going to be helpful. What about to the 1918 pandemic? Well, I think this is a more reasonable model to consider, but I would say that there is no evidence at this time that the actual case fatality rate is what we saw in 1918, where in some cases, by age population, we saw 3 or 4% of the population died. What was also different about 1918 was the fact that the largest number of deaths actually occurred among young, healthy adults, as opposed to the older population. In this outbreak, we're seeing a preponderance of cases in those over 50 years of age, and particularly those who have underlying health conditions. So this is also presenting as a very different illness we saw in 1918, but some of the transmission characteristics, how it spread around the world, how fast it could infect people in a given population when the virus is introduced into that population is very similar. In terms of the spread of the virus and how bad it may or may not get, both Bloom and Osterholm agree. We just don't know how the situation will ultimately evolve, but a wider global spread is likely. Here's more from Osterholm. If you look at Wuhan and just take that as an example of what happened, this virus clearly emerged in late November at the latest, maybe mid-November. And no one picked up any activity in Wuhan almost until the end of December, a month later. And that was when the first cases were identified by the medical community as something else is going on here besides influenza. Well, if you look at how many patients on average, if they're not in protective isolation, 
will they transmit to other people? Best data says it's maybe about two. Regular influenza is 1.2 to 1.4. Pandemic influenza may be 1.8. So this is two, meaning one person in one incubation period of the time from exposure to if they do get sick, then transmits to two people. In this case, using an incubation period about six days. So imagine in the first 24 days or four generations, one person transmits to two, two to four, four to eight, eight to 16. And those basically four times six or 24 days, there are 31 total cases. Go to the next four generations, 32, 64, 128, 256, that's 480 cases. Now you're starting to really pick up something, and particularly if 80% of these cases are mild, you're not talking about a lot of cases here that would be detected by the medical system. Now get out to the ninth and 10th generations, where using the same math, you go to 516, 1,032 or 1,548 cases. Now, if 5% of these cases are severe, you start really picking this up. But that's 10 generations out, or basically 60 days. So even when a virus is introduced in a country around the world, it will have to go through much like Wuhan did, where basically it won't be detected in the first month or two. Now, if this is going to act like SARS or MERS, then the intervention would be effective because people wouldn't become infectious till the day six or seven of their illness, and we would know who they are, we can isolate them, etc. But with this model that's emerged with influenza virus-like transmission, where you may be infectious well before you get sick, or you may be so mildly ill, quarantines not work. While Bloom agrees that more global cases are likely, he emphasizes that control measures can slow the spread of the disease. This is important, he says, because it buys crucial time for the medical community to prepare and hopefully spreads out the cases so that medical resources don't become overwhelmed. It seems to us like an increasing number of people are saying that this is not containable at this point. Do you agree with that? I think it's very hard for scientists to make evidence-based predictions. I wouldn't have predicted that the cordon sanitaire around Wuhan would result in a decline in the epidemiology and the spread before middle or late March and early April. But the number of cases has now gone down. We had a call from someone very knowledgeable in China, and there is reason to believe the data are accurate that the numbers are going down in Hubei and Wuhan. But I think most people believe that there are an awful lot of people who were exposed in Wuhan who already flew out before the rather draconian measures were imported that we don't know anything about. So the sense is this will probably spread as an infection worldwide, or in many cases worldwide, because we simply have no way of identifying who is able to transmit particularly if there are transmitters who are not yet sick and asymptomatic. But what China is teaching us is perhaps lessons about how do we contain it within a country, recognizing that any attempt in restricting mobility in and out of an area but not locking everybody up is porous and we can expect it to leak. The outcome of that is very important to recognize in my view. If you put in very stringent conditions to slow down the spread, social distancing, 
closing schools, preventing athletic events, and any kind of gathering of large numbers, that would be a good thing to do. That has the effect not of stopping the epidemic, but of slowing it down. And slowing it down allows the public health systems to be able to deal with it in a way without being overwhelmed. As the duration extends, the number of people demanding hospital care is much lower than at the peak of an epidemic if we don't slow it down. If you look at the course of outbreaks and epidemics, more people died in West Africa from ordinary diseases like measles and birth deaths and cardiovascular deaths than ever died from Ebola because the hospitals were unable to cope with Ebola. So that containment really means to enable the public health system to keep up with the number of cases and not be overwhelmed and have patient care be an awful lot better than at the peak when you have to build tents outside of hospitals and not get a lot of medical personnel who are able to deal with it. Then the evidence for that was the classic case, 1918 influenza, where the impact on the East Coast was very bad. But by the time it got to St. Louis and Midwestern cities, the epidemic was much more prolonged. They were prepared for it, and I think it was a much more effective response. That said, neither Bloom nor Osterholm believe the U.S. is prepared to deal with an outbreak today. Here's Osterholm. Not only they're not prepared for it, but they're only now beginning to understand how interdependent they are with the rest of the world for their preparedness. For example, our group is the one that has been studying for the last year and a half in trying to discern supply chains for critical drugs that we need in this country. We've identified 153 drugs through a process of bringing in a number of medical care experts. And of these 153 drugs that you need, we call them acute critical drugs. You need them within hours or people die. What's on the crash cart? What's in the emergency room? What's on the ambulance rig? What's in intensive care medicine? And of those 153 drugs, all of them are generic. Of them, most of them are made outside the United States, almost all of them. A very sizable proportion of those drugs are made in China. If you look at those drugs, already 63 were on shortage status of some kind before this outbreak ever happened. Just everyday normal course of medical practice. And so one of our biggest concerns in a country like the United States is if we, in fact, have an increased number of cases of this illness at a time when we already have shortages to begin with and now they become growingly acute, you have a perfect storm. Same thing is true with personal protective equipment. Most hospitals today in this country have no stockpiles of PPE of any meaningful amount. So the whole world is together on this situation. It's not just China. And here's Bloom. We are already facing shortages. CDC cannot even get a workable diagnostic test to every public health laboratory in the country after a very long period of time. That's shameful. We don't have any central coordination or leadership in this country that is able to organize the public health system in every city, every town, and every of the 17 agencies in government that need to be engaged. We are not prepared, and I am concerned. 
Beyond the public health implications of the disease itself, I spoke with our chief economist, Jan Hatzius, about the economic impact of the outbreak. He thinks these developments will weigh heavily on global growth, at least in the near term, prompting central banks around the world to act, including the Fed. Jan, please walk us through your thinking on our growth views and what we are assuming in our base case. So we're at about 2% for global growth. That compares with about 3.4% at the end of last year. And sequentially, we've now got the global economy contracting in Q1 and eking out only a very small sequential gain in Q2. This is basically all because of the virus. Pre-virus data were actually pretty good. We were generally pretty encouraged about the economy gradually finding its footing and accelerating into 2020. But there are no less than five ways in which the virus weighs on global growth. One is just the direct effect of the quarantines and the sharp declines in activity in China. China is worth about 15 to 20 percent of the global economy. For China, we're now at 2.5% GDP growth in the first quarter. That's 2.5% year on year. That doesn't sound that bad, but actually it, I think, is the lowest number in the Bloomberg Consensus Survey, and it does imply a sizable contraction in the first quarter. So that's one. Number two, spillovers through reduced tourism spending. Number three, reduced goods exports to China by non-Chinese, especially manufacturers, And then there are two additional spillovers and ways in which the virus weighs on global growth. One is that we're now building in some damage to supply chains. And if non-Chinese producers run out of parts, run down their inventories, and therefore also have to cut back production. And then the last one is a hit to domestic spending in countries that are affected by virus outbreaks. And of course, we've already had virus outbreaks to a significant degree in Korea, in Italy, and increasingly in other countries as well. We think that that's probably going to weigh on a number of domestic spending categories. Air travel is an obvious one. Anything involving large gatherings of people, conferences, sports events, entertainment. Beyond that, it really depends on the severity, but we are now building in a significant amount of weakness across most of the major economies. So in the U.S., for example, we're now at 1.3% for annual average 2020 growth. That number was 2.3% late last year. So how do you see the risks around these forecasts at this point? Well, I think it's hard not to say that the risks are on the downside because we're in a period where the virus news is becoming something that the general public pays attention to. If cases grow sharply further across most of the world, as many epidemiologists predict, and I should include the usual disclaimer that this is outside our expertise, but if that happens, we could see quite a lot of downside on consumer spending, and then you could see a significantly larger hit. One thing I do want to say that's maybe on the slightly more encouraging side, which is that I do believe that ultimately there will be a V-shaped recovery in the sense that This is a big pullback and an increase in risk aversion, and it's very hard to know how long that goes. But when that risk diminishes or ends, I think there will be a sharp recovery. So I think relative to some of the cycles that we've been through over the last couple of decades, where we generally thought that expectations of a V-shaped recovery were overdone, 
And we were generally on the side saying, no, it's going to be more U-shaped and the discussion is between U-shaped and L-shaped. In this case, I think there will be a sharp recovery. It's just hard to know when it will come. We have 100 basis points factored in by June for Fed cuts. Why do you think the Fed will move so aggressively at this point, especially since it seems like it's a situation where monetary easing might not help that much? We need to see more action in public health policy and maybe even fiscal policy, but it's not as clear what monetary policy easing will achieve. It's true that monetary policy is less central, and in some sense, financial markets are less central to this than was the case in the last couple of downturns. So the question of how good the public health response and maybe the broader fiscal policy response is probably relatively more important than it was in the last couple of cycles. That said, central banks control the monetary policy response. They don't control the public health response, and they will want to be part of the solution, even if it's not the most important part of the solution. And they will want to do what they can to ensure stability in the economy and in the markets. So I strongly think that even if it's only a relatively limited amount they can do, that they will be trying to use the tools they have, especially at a time when they're not worried about higher inflation. Inflation is generally below target. And at least in the US and some other countries, they would actually like it to be a little bit above target. So they feel like they have a free hand in responding with easier policy. There is Two other observations that I think are important in thinking about the monetary policy response. One is that doing nothing means tightening when the market is pricing a lot of easing. If you go into a meeting and we're pricing 50 basis points of easing for the Fed at the next meeting, they don't deliver, you get a sharp tightening in financial conditions. The other point is that the Fed last year eased by 75 basis points in response to a risk that looked quite a bit smaller then I think it looks to many at the moment. So I think that also calls for a sizable response. Finally, we look into implications of the virus for markets, which have clearly begun to digest the economic hit, with the S&P 500 now down on the year and U.S. 10-year Treasury yields declining to a new all-time low. Our U.S. Chief Equity Strategist David Costin now expects no earnings growth for U.S. companies this year, and he's lowered his near-term S&P 500 target to 2,900. But at least for now, he thinks record-low Treasury yields and some assumptions for recovery will support a year-end target of 3,400, barring a U.S. recession. Of course, all of this depends on the spread and containment of the virus in the coming weeks and months, something we'll monitor as it continues to impact the global economy and remains top of mind. Our sympathies to all of those affected by the virus. I'll leave it there for now. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, 
is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.